Welcome to Good God, Conversations That Matter About Faith and Public Life. I am your host, George Mason, and today we are continuing our series called American Faith. Uh, conversations with people of different faith traditions in the United States uh, about their experience, their lived experience with the promise of being a part of a country that promises full religious freedom. Uh, and yet we, while we have legal protections as such, we don't always experience all of the uh, promise of, of that in our everyday lives. Today, we have the honor of having with us Mark Romney. Uh, Mark is a friend of mine. We uh, serve together uh, in Faith Forward Dallas at Thanksgiving Square, an interfaith group that seeks to promote the common good. And Mark uh, is, is a lawyer uh, by uh, profession, uh, president of his own law firm uh, that deals with international business and contracts and mergers and acquisitions and the like. Uh, but he is also the president of the Dallas Stake, uh, which is similar, I guess, in other traditions to a conference or a, a diocese, Mark, I assume, right? Uh, yes, I think if it were to be compared to, say, for example, the, the Catholic Church, uh -huh. a stake is an amalgamation of smaller units that are called wards. And right. then the stake would be about the equivalent of a diocese in the Catholic Church. Right, great. And in this case, you can see in his uh, graphic behind him uh, that the temple uh, in Utah, right? Uh, is the Salt Lake Temple, yes. Salt Lake Temple. So you can guess that Mark uh, is uh, part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that is now the official name of the church. Uh, it recently, uh, I think that's been a, a ruling that said this is how we're going to be called, right? Well, that's been the name of the church since the very beginning. Uh, I think at first uh, our enemies called, called us Mormons, but then we kind of said, yeah, that's okay. You can call us Mormons. But now we've been asked by our president of the church to utilize the full name of the church, which is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Great. So in, in a sense, Mark, this is, uh, you are representative of the church that Tolstoy called quintessential American faith, right? In, in the sense that you really are, when we talk about American faith, you were, uh, well, although your roots, of course, go back in Christianity to the beginning and, and beyond that, the Middle East, nonetheless, the, uh, the, the history of the church is an, a truly American experience. It, it truly is, George. In fact, yes, I think you're accurate in saying that we are definitely one, if not the pr principal quintessential American church. The church mm -hmm. was founded in the year 1830 in New York State, and uh, the beginnings of the church were here in the United States. And uh, at this point, it continues to be the, the headquarters of the church. Right. So, and of course, it's a very much a missionary faith. And so, uh, while it's maybe located primarily uh, in, in the Western Hemisphere, you are all over the world as, as well. Well, that's true. And uh, you say Western Hemisphere, and you're, you're very accurate in that. Uh, the, the three principal languages spoken by members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints now are, number one, Spanish, number two, wow. English, and number three, Portuguese. Uh, All three of which you are fluent in, by the way. Yes, right. I am. Thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have an opportunity to serve as, a, as an LDS missionary in Brazil, uh, but I spoke Spanish before I went, and I've 
speak Spanish since, and I, I preside over two congregations of Spanish speakers in my stake. Terrific. So, uh, Mark, I think, uh, you know, when, when I grew up as in, uh, in New York City, as an evangelical Christian, uh, I um, uh, had only the meagerest understanding of uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, and as uh, among evangelicals, I think there has always been uh, a sense of uh, trying to figure out where you all fit in Christianity, and maybe that's been true from your side as well. Uh, and of course, some would would put you inside, and some would put you outside. And you you all live kind of in one foot in both, wouldn't you say? How, how do you describe that? Well, I think when you get down to brass tacks, we clearly are a Christian church, hence the name, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mm -hmm. We believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ, including the ordinances of the priesthood, the saving ordinances, which would be, of course, baptism, and then the temple ordinances, which we perform in the temples, such as I have demonstrated in the background, that the authority was restored to the earth through the prophet Joseph Smith, in beginning in the 1820s and continuing up till his death in 1844. And with that authority, then we have the opportunity to perform the saving ordinance of baptism. Uh, we have had restored to the earth the priesthood, both the Aaronic priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood. Uh, we have had restored the temple ordinances, the saving ordinances, the endowment, the sealings of husbands and wives for eternity. Uh, so we believe that uh, we are the quintessential, not only American church, but we believe we are the church of Jesus Christ that has been restored on the earth through modern day prophets. Which of course then puts you in tension with other churches uh, oh, mine, that, you know, uh, also make their own claims about their uh, place. Uh, and yet you find yourself uh, participating fully with uh, churches like mine and with uh, other religious groups in working for the common good in American life. So your particularism and your identity that, and, and, a, and a claim of, of uniqueness and authenticity of your own church doesn't prevent you from fully participating uh, with others and being generous about the, the work of, of other religious groups, right? Well, it absolutely requires us to participate with others. Uh, we believe one of our basic tenets of gospel doctrine is we believe that each of us that are here on this earth, each human that is here on this earth, is a spiritual child of heavenly parents uh, that are here on this earth to be tested and tried, uh, to make covenants with our Father in heaven, and to follow the teachings of the gospel of Jesus Christ, by whom and through whom only is salvation made possible for us, uh, but with the full expectation that someday we will hopefully be able to go back into the presence of our heavenly parents and to, to live with them for eternity. So we, we believe that everybody that we meet in the whole world is literally one of our brothers and sisters. So, yeah, it's, it's required of us to love others and to do our very best to help others. Well, you mentioned uh, earlier uh, in our conversation before I think we came on that, that you know, really your, your congregation is primarily organized and led by lay people. Uh, I think most people who would be listening to you doing some 
pretty deep theology here for a lot of folks, uh, would be interested to know that you yourself are a layperson, nonetheless a leader in the church, and that uh, uh, you know the, the church is not organized in the same way as many others with the kind of clergy uh, leaders. Uh, so it's, it's really uh, led by laypeople. Well, that's true on the local level. It is absolutely led by laypeople. Now we have, uh, we sustain uh, currently President Russell M. Nelson as a prophet, mm -hmm. seer, and revelator. Mm -hmm. He is he presides over a quorum of the first presidency. He has two counselors, mm -hmm. and they also have we also have a standing quorum of the twelve apostles. We believe formed in the same mode and same pattern as set forth by the Savior when he was on the earth, and they are. We have, of course professional employees that run the operations of the church, which is a worldwide right. church. We are about 17 million people now. Uh, we're on every continent of the world that will let us be in. Uh, there are certain places where we're still not permitted to be, uh, but uh, we have humanitarian efforts throughout the world. So we have uh, those that are full-time employees for that, but the actual ministry work on the local level is done by lay people. And even some of the, there are uh, presiding authorities uh, what, that are what we call members of the Quorum of the 70 that are lay people that have their own occupations and that uh, work, uh, do their own support and they do their ministering efforts on the weekends and during the week like we do. We so also have, really differently than perhaps a lot of other churches though too, George, is Essentially, every active member of the church is given a calling, a, 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 an assignment, a ministry of some sort to, to participate. So I couldn't do the things that I do uh, and also have a full-time law practice and the other areas that I'm interested in without the help with, of a lot of people. So everybody's working at the same time and we're all working towards the same goal. So one of the things I, I really want to pursue in this conversation, Mark, is what the um, history of lived experience is of uh, members of your church uh, across time in America and how there has been a, a, a growing acceptance, I would say, perhaps of, uh, of members of your, of, of your tradition, LDS Church, uh, in American life. And that has been contested across the nearly two centuries since uh, the, the founding of the religion, including, in fact, uh, the murder of Joseph Smith, all right, uh, yeah. by those who rejected uh, this, this movement. So uh, I, I know that um, gaining a sense of cultural and, in fact, political acceptance, which uh, going back to 1890, right, and the, uh, the decision to end plural marriage by the church, uh, is, is part of that so that Utah could become a state. You have this whole sort of series of, uh, of events and a, a, a growing sense of a rightful place in American society, you might say. Can you give us a little survey of what that has been like for the church and its history in America? You bet. I'm happy to do that. Uh, and it's an interesting history, George, in the respect that uh, for a, a group of people that was literally kicked out of so many places, they held very strongly in their hearts the notion that the United States of America was divinely inspired, that the, that the founders of the government were divinely inspired uh, 
right. and that the the constitutional freedoms and liberties that we have were absolutely necessary to be available in order for the restoration of the gospel to take place in a mm -hmm. in a country that didn't have the class didn't have a a state church uh, and even then though the the beginnings of the church was very precarious for many years as I mentioned earlier, the, the church was started in 1830, is officially organized in the state of New York, uh, and it grew fairly quickly. Uh, Joseph Smith had come from a very humble background. He was very uneducated, unlearned, and uh, I won't go into the whole uh, beginning story there, but it is a fascinating story. But the church as a group uh, quickly centered in Kirtland, Ohio, so that's just a little bit outside of the Cleveland area. And remember, this is the 1830s. And also during those early 1830 years, uh, the, some of the saints that uh, were joining the church were centering in Missouri, and first in Jackson County, which is where Independence is, uh, right outside of Kansas City. And then uh, so there were kind of two centers of the church at that time in the early 18, mid-1830s. Kirtland, Ohio, and then uh, Missouri. And as uh, things progressed, difficulties arose. There was a, a, a run on the banks, a, a lot of bank failures in the mid-1830s in Kirtland. The, the church basically lost all of its money. They, had, they were very poor. The church was never a place of wealth by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, the people built a temple as they were commanded by their Father in Heaven, and uh, they built this building, which was a spacious building at the time for that part of Ohio. Uh, they were essentially driven out by persecution. Then they grouped together in Missouri, which was kind of like going from the frying pan into the fire. Uh, and considering what the history was in Missouri at the time, when it was, it was uh, on the frontier, it was uh, some folks were coming from slave states, some were coming from uh, free states. Uh, there was a lot of uh, confusion. Well, the Mormons, the, the LDS church, those early pioneers settled first in independence. And then as more and more of them came in, their number started to outnumber those that were not members of the church. And that created some political friction. Sure. They were kicked out of independence out of Jackson County. Another county was made just north of that. They went up there. Same thing happened. Uh, then they were kicked out of that county, and they went up to some other parts and a little bit further north in Missouri until we hit 1838, uh, excuse me, 1838, when literally the Mormon War was declared in uh, Missouri. And uh, at that time, the governor of the state, uh, Lilburn Boggs, issued a, an extermination order that the Mormons were to be driven from the state. Uh, Joseph Smith was thrown in jail for several months uh, without being tried and just kept there for the five or six months. Uh, at that time, there was one city, that one little town, a little, a little settlement that was raided, and 13, I believe 13 people were killed by a mob um, that were members of the church that were killed by the mob. There were disputes back and forth between them, and uh, it ended up that the Missouri militias essentially forced all the Mormons to leave in the dead of winter in 1838. Uh, and if I could the, stop you there for a moment, sure. Mark, on, and I'll let you pick up in a moment, but yeah. I, I think it's important to, to say 
that you're talking about counties, uh, government officials, state officials, the use of, of, of a, the state militias and all this sort of, sort of thing, the arms of the state acting to deny religious liberty and to persecute a faith uh, when the Constitution and the First Amendment were in force uh, still, and yet this is still taking place. So I, I think it's important to remember that, you know, just because we have laws on the books does not mean we live up to them always, right? Yeah. And it gets worse. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> yeah, okay. It gets worse yeah. than that. I mean, if you can yeah. imagine, but I do want to point out one of the things that sometimes we don't talk about enough, but is very dear to my heart. In the winter of 1838, there were literally five to 7,000 members of the church on the eastern banks, on the, excuse me, on the western banks of the Mississippi River across from Quincy, Illinois. Uh, Illinois was on the, on the eastern side of the river and Missouri, they were huddled on the, west, on the western banks of the Missouri, in, on the western banks of the Mississippi and Missouri. This town of Quincy, Illinois only had about 2,500 people. They put up 5,000 to 7,500 members of our church for a whole winter wow. and took them in, fed them, housed wow. them, made, helped them find some jobs, some of them. And there has, I defy any, any historian in the, in the history of the United States to find an act of, of kindness and charity and love to the other, as it were, Yes. As weird as the LDS church was considered in those days to take those people in with no regard for what they believed or anything like that. And so I, I give complete tribute to those folks. And there was another episode that happened in 1912 uh, in the city of El Paso, Texas, when they took in many, including some of my relatives, my grandparents that ah. were taken in when the, many of the members of the church had to flee Mexico. Uh, yes. Northern Mexico after they had been kicked out of the United States because of the practice of polygamy. And then Pancho Villa kicked them back into the United States. <laughs> the city of El Paso put up my, my grandparents and many others, many hundred others uh, in, in taking care of them for the winter uh, in the old El Paso lumberyard. And for that, we as a, as a church are eternally grateful, not only to the city of Quincy, Illinois, but to the city of El Paso, Texas, for having taken care of many of our, of our saints in the years. But the, the saints then moved to, uh, in 1830, late 1830s, they moved to a place called Commerce, Illinois, which was a swampland. It's on a, a horseshoe bend. At the time, there was a rapid right there uh, uh, by a little town on Iowa side called Keokuk. It was called the Keokuk Rapids. And it was, they bought the whole township uh, it was a swamp. It was, people suffered from malaria when they went there and they drained that swamp. They started building, uh, they started building homes and a city. They went to the state legislature in Illinois, as we talk about religious freedoms. And there they were able to get a very uh, good charter for their city that gave them the right to have their own militia. So, and that, that went, they weren't the only ones that had that, but the city of Nauvoo had a, they called us the town Nauvoo. They set up their own militia. They had their own university. 
They had their own, uh, you know, their own city government, their own court system and stuff. So for a few years, they had at least governmental help because they had their own government function among their own people. Uh, that changed over the years as more members of the church, the church's missionary efforts, principally in England and in places like Denmark, uh, in Germany, uh, brought literally tens of thousands of converts to the church that came to the United States. Uh, these were people that were typically poor. These were people that typically did not have high social standing in England, but these were people that were looking to find a better life. And after they uh, joined the, the church in those, those countries, then they came very, very poor, destitute, most of them coming, uh, including in those were most of my ancestors uh, that came in the early, early 1840s. Uh, and as Nauvoo continued to build, one of the important things that the church did at that time, though, was that Joseph Smith and the leaders of the church importuned the federal government in Washington, D.C. for recompense for the properties that were taken from them in Missouri. Uh -huh. In fact, Joseph Smith and some of his associates went to Washington, D.C., finally were able to get an audience with President Martin Van Buren, who essentially said, eh, sorry, this is a state matter. You, you need to go to the state courts invoking federalism, which, you know, is not absolutely incorrect from a from a legal standpoint, but uh, they were denied that. And they have never, they were never compensated for the losses of property or lives uh, or anything that they suffered in the Missouri, in the Missouri years. The city of Nauvoo continued to grow, but as it continued to grow, continued legal problems were hitting them. Uh, people were still starting to do, they were gaining some political capital in that area. And that was one of the problems. I mean, here they are a different religion than most everybody else. And they've got all these people coming, all these new converts that are coming. The city of, of, of Nauvoo at that time was equal to the size of the city of Chicago. It was wow. one of the largest cities in the state of Illinois. Interesting. Okay. Uh, and so it, uh, but as the neighbors decided that they didn't like having all these uh, members of the LDS church there, they started to, to do persecution against them. The people from the state of Missouri kept coming, trying to come over, trying to arrest Joseph Smith. Uh, all kinds of charges were brought against him. Uh, eventually, he, was, he surrendered to the uh, state militia in uh, Illinois. He and his uh, brother and two other folks were taken and held at a jail in the town called uh, Carthage, which was about 30 miles away. Uh, from maybe not quite 30 miles from Nauvoo. Uh, and in June of 1844, uh, Hiram, Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram were assassinated by a mob after the governor left them there essentially in the hands of the, the hostile mobs. Most people thinking that, well, that's, that's it for the LDS church. They're, they're goners now because Joseph Smith's gone, but that's not uh, the way things happened. Uh, we believe that Joseph Smith was given the keys of the priesthood, including the keys to administer the, the church. And those keys were given to the members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And eventually, as things worked out, uh, the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, when the pro president of the church passes away, becomes the next president of the church. There's no, we don't, we don't have a vote. We don't no have election, a election. No election. Yeah, right. 
right. no election. No, no. Right. There, that that is a a a a succession that happens relative very painlessly. I mean, it just happens right. as right. as one passes away, the other takes that reign. And for example, today our president is became the president of the church when he's ninety three, and he's wow. ninety six now. And I, I defy, <laughs> I would have a hard time keeping up with him. I mean, yeah, literally, yeah. He, he is extremely robust. But the church was eventually kicked out. They, they built a beautiful temple in Nauvoo. Right. Uh, and in 1845 and 46, they were finally uh, pushed out by the mobs. And then they left. They were kicked literally outside the United States. They huddled on the banks of, the, uh, of Iowa on the other side of the Mississippi. Many of them left in the dead of winter again. Why is it that people are always kicking folks out in the dead of winter? I mean, it's, it, it has to get a little yeah, tired. I mean, it's, it's cruel. I mean, it happened to Roger Williams as well in yeah, the Massachusetts no, I mean, Bay Colony. Yeah, there's, right. There's, yeah. there's time-honored tradition in being kicked out in the dead of winter. That's right. Uh, but they, they centered, and uh, they basically got the, the biggest body of them moving across Iowa, and they settled in what is now Omaha area, which was back then called Council Bluffs, which included both the east side and the west side of the Missouri River. Mm -hmm. uh, they made uh, arrangements with the Indian tribes in that area to, to have temporary settlements there. Uh, they built thousands of cabins uh, to, to, to house the people that were coming. And then in the spring of 1847, uh, the Pioneer Company, about 132 folks, went on ahead with Brigham Young uh, and they went through what is now the, considered the Mormon trail uh, because that, and it's interesting that parallels for the most part, the Oregon trail. Now they had to go yes. on a different side of the river, the Missouri river and the Platte rivers as they went up and the, the sweet water and things like that, as they got further West, they had to go on the other side because you remember in those days when you were traveling with a big group like that, all your animals had to have pasture. And so you couldn't have all the folks that were going up the Oregon trail and the folks going on the Mormon trail with their, with their herds and everything eating the same grass. You had to, you had to lessen that out. So they arrived, the pioneer companies arrived on June, July 24th, 1847 in what is now the Salt Lake Valley. Uh, they had uh, the, the place had been shown to Brigham Young in a vision. And uh, when he got there, he was very ill, but he was able to lift up from his wagon as they cleared Emigration Canyon, which interestingly enough, the trail had been cut by the Donner Party the year before. Right. Uh, things right. didn't turn out so good for the Donners because they could have gone. Yes. got caught in the Sierra Nevadas. But right. uh, the members of the, the Pioneer Trek from the LDS Church was going to the Salt Lake Valley, which was very desolate. Uh, and this was considered to be the place where they would settle. And then after that, there became a, a pattern of people coming across the plains, uh, in, first in covered wagons, uh, in wagon trains, uh, the m big bodies of the church going there. And then very interesting in 1850, starting in 1853, uh, including many of my ancestors, some of the folks that were joining the church in England that were extremely destitute. I mean, these were these were typically factory workers uh, in places like Manchester, Preston, things like this. These were not, these were not wealthy people at all. They would save enough money to get their fare across the Atlantic and get to, back then, Iowa City, 
which was where the railroad ended, uh, they would, from Iowa City, they would walk with a handcart, uh, pushing their, their goods. Every 20 people had, every 20 people had a, a covered wagon that went with them to carry their bedding and their food, but they carried, they had 15 pounds of goods that they could take per person, pushing their handcart for 1,200 miles from Iowa City My to Salt Lake. And so you had many hundreds that went that way, thousands that went that way for a few years. Uh, and that the, the pioneer treks continued until 1960, 1869, when, of course, the, uh, the railroads met in Promontory Point in Utah, just outside of Ogden, Utah. And that's where the Golden Spike was driven. And then after that, of course, people were able to come on trains. And uh, so that ended what we call the pioneer period of Utah history. So, but let me just summarize if I can, because we don't have much more time, Mark. Sure. I, I, I want to say, so the story you've told is a story, is an American story of a uh, religious group that is birthed in the United States of America and that struggled to find its place in the country. Uh, the pioneer movement was fraught with persecution and with tension uh, until it arrived at a place of that, that it could essentially live freely. And, and then there came a time when, uh, with the, the blessing of the fact that in your own doctrine, there is a sense of progressive revelation, uh, the church is able to change its uh, position on plural marriage and be more broadly accepted and Utah becomes a state and those sorts of things. So that ultimately, if we could fast forward, what we have is now a history of, uh, of representatives of your church uh, that uh, have served with enormous distinction in the halls of Congress, uh, presidential candidates, uh, George Romney and his son Mitt Romney and Orrin Hatch and Mo Udall and people like this who have served in distinction in the Senate and of course uh, uh, other um, uh, other leaders of our country. So that there, there is a sense of being enfranchised, you might say, now within more of the mainstream of, of, of political life and even cultural life in America. And it's been a hard one sort of uh, two centuries nearly of, uh, of, of progress there in that way. So that in, in effect now you uh, have, uh, have founded, co-founded the uh, DFW Alliance for Religious Freedom and, and you're working to, to, to actually defend the rights of other people now as well as, as your own in seeing the fruits of liberty uh, be true in America. Well, clearly, yes, we are. And, you know, what, what was never lost was the belief in the, the sanctity of the United States founding documents, the Declaration of right. Independence, the Constitution, the ability, the, the freedoms given to us in the Bill of Rights, which, of course, just are the most fantastic thing that ever happened to humankind, frankly. Mm -hmm. We never lost that faith. We didn't think we didn't. We don't feel like we were treated fairly, per, per chance, uh, with those issues. But we never lost that that belief that the founding was foreordained by our Father in Heaven, that uh, the land of freedom, that the the ability of people to have the rights to live their lives, 
to choose their religion, to choose their occupations, to progress, to, to be successful, to have the opportunity to, I, I mean, if you stop and think about the lay system in, in a church, if you don't have enough to take care of your own family, how do you have the ability to help others? Mm-hmm. If you, it, you have to be standing on a place where you can help others come up to another plateau. So you have to, to, to do the things. And that's one of the main tenets that we have, that we're very strong. And, and, and perhaps we differ from a lot of other people, but we have a very strong belief in the power of agency that our Heavenly Father has given us, that the government has, that we are protected by that right to choose uh, certain things, including the right to, to the responsibility that falls on all of us to be self-reliant, to do the very best we can. So we encourage people to get as much education as they can. We don't tell people they need to go to college, but we, I tell people all the time, and I work, I work with youth a lot, get an education so that you can take care of yourself and your family. You need to be able to take care of yourself. Then we can help others we, and we can help them, but we want to help them learn how to take care of themselves as well. We want people to be self-reliant. We want them to learn how to do their own finances. We want them to learn how to get a job. We want them to learn how to get a better job, how to get an education. Uh, we have very low cost education available to people of all faiths through Brigham Young University and their various aspects of that and what's called uh, BYU Pathway. Uh, we do this all around the world. Uh, we do this in many languages. We have courses on, uh, on self-reliance, on, on study skills, on how to do things like that. But we encourage people to continue to improve. We believe that each of us is in need of repentance every day, that we all make mistakes but that we are trying to become like our Heavenly Father and like the Savior. We're trying to live and live our lives patterned after that. In order to do so, that means we have to be willing to correct ourselves when we're wrong and to ask for forgiveness from our Heavenly Father as we repent. We believe that we are able to renew our covenants with our Heavenly Father when we take the sacrament, uh, the the bread and the water that we take uh, on Sundays. Uh, that we renew those covenants that we're able to have, as each of us are, are baptized members of the church, we receive the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost to be guided by the Spirit in our own life. We believe in personal revelation. We believe that each of us needs to have the ability to make decisions for themselves. The Book of Mormon is a, an incredible volume that we have, which has more mention of Jesus Christ than the Bible. <laughs> per capita, per, per page. Per page. It's just a fact. I mean, we believe yeah. it is a testament of Jesus Christ. Right. Another testament from people that left Jerusalem and came to the New World, but they had the gospel. They 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 had the they had the books of the Bible, that the the prophecies of the Bible, Isaiah and those that talked about uh, the Savior coming. They knew he was coming. He did come to visit some of the, the people here after he was resurrected in the old world. And we also have a record of two whole sets of people that abandoned those principles and turned to evil and uh, were literally destroyed because of it. And Mm -hmm. it serves as a clarion call for us because the book that was compiled by the prophet Mormon was taken from all these records of a thousand years of records that he gathered and compiled into what is now the Book of Mormon. 
but it wasn't written for those people. It was written for us mm-hmm. because we knew it was coming. He knew it was coming out in our day and it help, helps us as a church and helps the world to understand that, look, your salvation comes through Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Your, you need to live the doctrine of Christ. You need to have faith. You need to repent. You need to make covenants. You need to have the gift of the Holy Ghost with you and, and, and have your life living so that you can have the importunings of the Spirit available to you. And then you need to endure to the end. So you all start that over every day, every day or every week. And we're always in a well, continual progress. You know, Mark, I, I think listening to you, I'm, I'm taken by the boldness with which you are speaking into uh, the American ethos out of the particularism of your own faith tradition, which is part of the, um, the beauty of, of America. And, and that is, we don't ask you to enter into the public sphere and uh, and, and sort of just find the minimum uh, sort of uh, acceptable way in which you can uh, talk about religious experience, but rather we ask people to come, and my organization called Faith Commons asks people to bring their unique particular faith with them and to speak into the common good from that. You do that with us here in Dallas. Uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has been doing that uh, in American life for nearly uh, two centuries now. Thank you for contributing to this conversation and for helping us all to understand better uh, your faith tradition among us, and we ask God's blessing on you. Thank you, George. And if I could just say one last thing, that's one of the reasons why we're so adamant about religious freedom, because mm-hmm. we want not only the ability to believe what we want, but we need to have, we believe that it's absolutely important that all religions have access to the public square mm-hmm. to be able to state things that they believe in public without having to remain silent. And I know there's a lot of contention about that these days, and that's one of the reasons why we're so adamant. So thank you for your efforts, and I appreciate the chance to know you and work with you. And uh, Great. thank you for inviting us to, to, to discuss these matters. Absolutely. Well, take care, Mark, and we'll be back with another edition of American Faith on Good God. Take care. Thank you. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2021 by Faith Commons.